How are things in your world? Yes, you know, trying to be everywhere at once. You know, uh, I'm, I'm going back. I'm going back and forth between D.C. and Oregon like a yo-yo. My wife tried to figure out how to run her store and do all that. But we kind of where are you? Right, airport. Where are you right now? I am in, uh, on my way back to um, Redmond and Bend. I have just been in Madras having my 970th town hall meeting. 950th and over what time frame? Nine, 970 since I took office, 1996. 1996. I want to make sure I have that number right. 900 and how many? 970. 970th town hall meeting since you were elected. What do you learn in those things? And and I know some of the time, and a lot of it, it's, it's showing face. A lot of it is uh, making sure people know what you're doing and what you're up to in D.C. But occasionally there's got to be something that somebody says that sticks with you, that occurs to you, that uh, impacts your thought process. Happens, happens all the time. I mean, you know, today I was uh, at the high school. And, you know, students are talking about things that directly, you know, affect them. And not just um, health care, but um, the question of the legal system. We had questions about privacy. And, you know, I always walk away with one or two kind of examples that, you know, I can use back in D.C. And, you know, a big part of this is kind of shortening the distance between rural Oregon and D.C. is making sure people get a chance to be heard, and I use a lot of the accounts. Any example that occurs to you? Maybe that's an unfair question because, you know, 970, hard to remember any one. Today we talked a lot about housing and the homeless, and I'm going to be introducing a proposal called the DASH Act, Decent, Affordable, Safe Housing for All. And I talk about how on the Oregon coast the – Housing director told me that there was a bus that stops at one of the state parks to pick up the uh, students who've been outside all night and, you know, cold and wet. I use that example. I used it today. We're talking to Senator Ron Wyden, senior senator from Oregon, who's in Oregon right now. You're listening to Extra. I'm Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for being with us. Let's get straight to one of the concerns we hear a lot here, which is democracy itself, which is the idea that we're supposed to be stronger together than we are apart and the idea that we're supposed to make decisions together based on a process that we can trust. How, knowing now what we know about 2016 and knowing now that Putin has said he'd like to see Donald Trump be reelected and knowing now that the president has not has been impeached, but has not been removed. What are things that are being done on election security or that could be done on election security between now? And I don't know, not very many months from now. Not enough. And uh, I will tell your listeners that. I'm on the Intelligence Committee, not going to get into anything classified, but I will tell them that as of today, the threats that we face to election security from hostile foreign powers to 2020 are going to make 2016 look like small potatoes. And just a couple of days ago, I went to the floor of the Senate. I asked consent to move to a bill that would set in place some cybersecurity standards, and I talked specifically about making sure that voting machines didn't have an open connection to the Internet. And an open connection to the Internet means, in effect, your ballots are stashed in the in the Kremlin. And Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, Senator Blackburn, objected. And I said, 
is it actually the position of the majority that they won't even talk about this subject? It's one thing to have an idea for a different type of bill or something that could be a bipartisan compromise, stuff like that. They just said, no, we're not going to talk about it. And that's what we've got to do between now and probably the next couple months. We've got to get a lot of election security, Paul Revere. And they got to get out and talk to their election officials and try to find out, you know, what the risks are to, you know, databases, to election night tabulation, to um, poll books, all that kind of thing. And what can say more about what can be done at the local level? I mean, Mitch McConnell, is, is there bipartisan support at this point for re-election security in Washington, or is because of Trump's view on this and what's better for Trump on this stuff? Is it too much a minority in the Senate, major Democratic majority in the House, minor, Democratic minority in the Senate issue and priority? It's mostly a cover-up. You know, Mitch McConnell, for example, uh, the other day uh, agreed to let. Uh, uh, some money, some additional spending, uh, spending go forward in terms of election. But it doesn't even have to be spent on anything relating to election security. You can just use it to buy desks or things like that. And he's running around saying, I'm spending more money on election security. So he's very, very uh, clever and figures out ways in which uh, he can advance his agenda. I think ultimately uh, some of those who are resisting election reform measures are also not much willing to take on voter suppression. So uh, the question of election security and voter suppression are sometimes uh, pretty much two sides of the same coin. We got a new appointee to be the acting director of national intelligence, uh, Richard Grinnell, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, who's no intelligence background. Without sharing anything classified, I heard you say that. But this interacts with your world. This interacts with your committee work. This interacts with objectives I'm, that come I'm across your desk. Very, very much opposed to what I've heard about this new you know, nominee. I mean, what this new nominee proves is that, you know, unquestioning obedience to Donald Trump matters a whole lot more than the safety of the American people. This is a person who has singular has a singular lack of qualifications for this post. And, uh, I can't believe that uh, Republican senators are going to support him, but uh, so far they're staying kind of quiet. I think they know that uh, his, his credentials and particularly the lack thereof don't even to and one of the troubling things is that, according to the reporting that I saw most recently, the previous guy was ousted because he just told the president about what was going on with the issues we were just talking about, what was happening with the risks to the U.S. elections, with foreign inf interference by Russia. And when that interference was shared to, when that information was shared to the president by the national security apparatus, no you know, liberal operatives in that room, they shared that information, the president flies off the handle and appoints a crony. Is, is that... An overstated thing? Is, is there information you have that well, disproves let, that reporting? Let me tell you, I can't talk about any kind of pending sure. matters, but it is not exactly an atomic secret that the intelligence community for several years now has been unanimous, unanimous, telling country and the president and everybody else that Russia hacked the 2016 election. And I'm not going through any classified powers. The threat seems greater, and it's not just the Russians. Um, the threat seems greater in 2020. Another national matter, and then I do want to talk about stuff that's happening here at home and the work you're doing there that intersects with that. But 
among the biggest national news has been the recent pardons by the president and the uh, and Donald Trump's efforts to reduce the sentences for his allies who have been accused of and convicted of crimes. Uh, what are the and and I'll say you might have comment on that and anything that the U.S. Senate even. Well, I'll, I'll just tell you the the idea that a president who counts himself as a law and order guy is handing out these pardons like confetti to convicted criminals just doesn't add up. Now we'll see what Mr. Barr. Know, does about this. At one time, he was all but signaling he was going to resign if the president kept trying to interfere with the business of the Justice Department. And after that, the president said, he basically challenged his own attorney general. He said, I have the complete legal right to interfere in the Justice uh, Department, which is an absurd reading of our uh, legal system because the Justice Department is accountable to the American, American people. It's not supposed to be a personal lawyer the president. Impeachment was the major topic. I'm sure you were getting asked about it all the time, both at, uh, on the Internet, in personal conversations, any media interviews, any town hall meetings. Now that issue is not at the forefront. There's been discussion about impeaching or removal of the current attorney general, uh, Barr. There are other folks who say, listen, we still haven't gotten to the bottom of the stuff uh, with respect to the presidency. Do you think all of this is merely a matter for the election or is there anything still bubbling up being discussed about in the halls of Congress in terms of Congress's role in holding a president accountable? Well, let's, let's um, remember that the debate during the impeachment process was so flawed. You know, when I was coming home um, in, in the last week, really late night, basically up all night. Somebody tugged on my elbow and said, Ron, you know, Perry Mason had witnesses in his trial. Why weren't there any witnesses? And the reality is the president's legal defense was a fiction. The president kept saying he was preventing corruption in Ukraine. He was causing corruption in Ukraine. Now, as far as it's all being over, uh, I'm continuing to look at a particularly important matter with respect to uh, the president's relationship with Erdogan, the head of the Turkish uh, government. And uh, Erdogan seems to have repeatedly asked uh, Trump to help him with Hulk Bank, which is uh, a bank in Turkey. They don't, and is the largest violator of Iran sanctions law in history. And uh, I questioned the Trump administration finance committee hearing uh, a couple of days ago. There was Pretty interesting admission where they basically said, yeah, we talked about Hulk Bank. And uh, after that, uh, one of the lead prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, which is particularly well-regarded uh, prosecutorial office, basically made it clear that they thought Spar had uh, been pushing them to go easy on Hulk Bank. So there's a lot of work to be done here. When Donald Trump attracted uh, so much attention around his pardons, his pardon to Rob Blagojevich, etc. I viewed that as a thing on its merits, and I also viewed it as what I call a smoke bomb. The president does stuff. I think he times his release of certain decisions so that he can draw attention to that smoke bomb, and that and the smoke bomb matters, but it also spreads a bunch of smoke uh, and makes it harder to see other things. What are things that we're missing? What stuff that's happening in Washington that not enough people are paying attention to because of the stuff that they are paying attention to? I think what the president is 
consistently trying to do is sort of cloud out any other kinds of kinds of discussions. For example, with respect to economics, the stock market is uh, doing fine. That's a good good thing. But the fact is, millions of Americans are getting battered by bills, are getting battered by their housing bills, are getting battered by their health care bills, are getting battered by their college education kind of bills. So um, the president doesn't want that to come out. He doesn't want those kinds of accounts to, to be discussed. And that's why I'm spending my time particularly trying to stop pharmaceutical price gouging. And there, one of the reasons we're encouraged is I'm the senior Democrat on the finance committee. Grassley, the chair of the committee, Grassley has actually been taking McConnell on, on this. And we can get with Nancy Pelosi. We could really put together a strategy to take on pharma. The Wall Street Journal needs story uh, yesterday uh, had a headline was uh, how big pharma lost its mojo. And this is in the president and President Trump's State of the Union address, he did say, hey, you get me a bill to address pharmaceutical costs and I will sign it. And a bunch of Democrats sitting in the hall were like, hey, wait a minute. There's been a bill that's passed through the House. It's bottled up in the Senate. And the analysis I said, well, yeah, Mitch McConnell needs a whole lot of dark money from the pharmaceutical industry in order to try to hold on to his majority. What are the politics of getting a bill like that well, the, through the, the U.S. The, Senate? The, the politics of this are really different because this is going to come down to whether Mitch McConnell is going to be for big pharma or is he going to be for the person who's getting mugged in the pharmacy counter. Now, just in the last couple of days, the Republican senator from Iowa, the Republican senator from Arizona, came out for the Grassley White. You know, Bill, we have much in common. Pelosi, uh, Bill, and what I'm telling people is, look, when people are getting just mugged on Things like insulin prices and the like. The price has gone up 13-fold in recent years. Drug in 13 times better. It's the same as one had for you know, 50 years. The name of the game is, is to get the Senate and House, House together and, and go over big pharma's heads and, uh, and protect the public rather than uh, the special interests. And you think there's a chance he does that? Do you think that only happens if there's a change in U.S. Senate control? If Tom Tillis wins in North Carolina, if Arizona goes Democrat, you think that there has to be a change in the majority of the U.S. Senate to get that bill done? Do you think there's a chance to do it in the next eight months? I, 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 I think political change isn't top-down very often. I think it's always kind of grassroots up. And that you've had just in the last couple of days uh, in uh, Iowa and Arizona, you've had uh, Republican senators, you know, clearly have been watching this and seeing how strongly their constituents, you know, feel. And, and what we need to do is uh, make it possible for us to get together with the House to uh, have a bipartisan bill. This goes to something that I, I think still holds as the top issue for Portlanders and Oregonians now and has for the last at least, I don't know, three years, which is housing affordability is housing costs. And the we all know, well, maybe we don't all know, but ever since the Reagan administration, there's been a, a precipitous decline in the federal investment around public housing, around housing assistance, about making sure that people have options, not only through uh, tax breaks, et cetera, but in fact, through housing availability. What are things that you're working on or what do you, any hope here, for what here, Washington here, might here, do? Yeah, here's, here's what I'm, I'm, I'm focused on, senior guy, on the... Um, Democratic side of the Finance Committee. I proposed something called the DASH Act, Decent, Affordable, Safe Housing for All, the DASH Act. And what I want to do 
is make kind of the first installment, big bill, big target. I want to make the first installment over a three-year period, getting a safe roof over the head of every single child in Oregon and in America. And I'm out talking to people all across the spectrum, and I'll advocate for, you know, tenants, developers, state um, authorities, and we're getting a good reaction. They like the fact that it's a big initiative, big target. It's a very specific and very doable kind of first, uh, first, uh, first tranche. And similar question, what are the odds, what's the political reality that you face in Washington to try to get that done? Is that if, if you can get Grassley on board, does that move the rest of the Senate? Uh, can you get Grassley on board? Is that the kind of thing well, that I needs mean, to now, be, between, go ahead. Between, between now and the 2020 election, it's going to be hard to see any big um, housing bill. But certainly if we're in the majority, and I'm chairman of the finance committee, we're going to be in a strong position. And if we're not, we're still going to keep talking about why you can't respond to citizens' needs. And I just mentioned to you, battered by bills. What are people battered by bills on? You know, healthcare, housing, education. You know, if you don't own a lot of stuff right now, you know, a lot of your your monthly monthly expenses just sort of, you know, dis- disappear. And the rent is too damn high. Up. Yeah. And you can't even, can't even dream of putting some aside for retirement. No, you, you you triggered me a little bit because I watch the presidential debates and, and I don't think you've endorsed and don't expect you to endorse a candidate right now. But I, any reflections, and I'll just share one reflect, reflection to prompt you. There has been so much focus on certain policy disagreements among the presidential candidates. And I almost want to throw a bagel at the screen and say, hey, listen, Congress is going to decide that. The differences between Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg's health care policy isn't going to matter as much as the difference between what the U.S. Senate thinks there ought to be health care policy in the United States. What are reflections? I'm, I'm, Go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling in for the next stop. Let's save uh, some discussion about uh, what's going on in the primary for uh, for another sh- another show, but you know, obviously, what we're what we're trying to convey is that the choices could not be you know more stark. I mean, people ask me about healthcare; they asked me at the last town meeting half an hour ago. I said, "Look, healthcare is a basic human right. Period. Full stop." So the differences between the sides pretty clear, and. Uh, Let's, uh, let's do another show. Let's do that. I did want to, before you run away, ask for your thoughts on Nick Fish. When we talk next, I do want to ask you about privatization of the post office. That was one of the things I think that did get covered over by the pardon smoke bomb. But any final word, I know you went to Nick Fish's memorial. He was a friend of the show, personal friend of mine, uh, broke the hearts of many when he passed. Any any thoughts or closing remembrance about uh, Commissioner Fish? Well, he always came to our town meetings in the metro area. And he would set up front. He'd always shake hands, talk to people about city and local things. And when I think about Nick Fish, think about he had two qualities that really are the heart of public service. First, he cared and everybody knew it. Second was he listened and everybody could see it. Two good memories, two good I guess Trace or probably wonderful, any wonderful man. any leader. Senator, thank you. So, any word about the post office? Is the post office is going to get privatized? Are they going to sell off a no, bunch of pieces? We're not, of that? Gonna, we're not allowed to privatize the post office. Out of the question. Thank you so much, Senator Wyden, for All spending right, the time. Let's I'll do it soon. Then. All right. Say take hi care. to your papa. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the interview with Ron Wyden. Thank you so much for doing that, Senior Senator from Oregon, Washington, D.C. And thanks so much for your support and for listening.